Hey, greetings, everyone. Lieutenant Colonel Alan West, and welcome to the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast. You gotta light them up before they burn it down. This episode of the Steadfast and Loyal Podcast brought to us by our friends at the United States Concealed Carry Association. And I just got a chance to meet those folks. They had a big concealed carry event down here in Fort Worth, Texas. The United States Concealed Carry Association literally helps to save lives. And let me explain. The USCCA is a membership association that provides self-defense education, training, and peace of mind to over 500,000 responsibly armed Americans nationwide. Click learn more below right now if you're ready to start your journey as one of them. When you activate your membership, you'll get access to expert self-defense education, life-saving training, and self-defense liability insurance. These resources are literally life-saving and the USCCA has first-person testimonies proving it. With your membership, you'll get access to hundreds of hours of training, videos, articles, checklists, guides, and more. You'll be able to get instant, up-to-date information about everything from gun laws to ammunition types to home self-defense drills. And best of all, it's 100% risk-free with the United States Concealed Carry Association's money-back bulletproof guarantee. That means that if you decide the USCCA isn't for you, simply call to request a prompt and courteous refund. So what are you waiting for? Click learn more below right now. Hey, greetings, everyone, and welcome back to the Steadfast and Loyal podcast. And one of the things I thought that we would do is to bring back some guests that we had prior to the midterm election. And let's get some thoughts, perspectives and insights on, you know, post the midterm elections. And since inflation and the economy was one of the big issues, I thought about bringing back Jim Nails, who was our supply chain expert and has some great insights previously when we had him on. So, Jim, thanks for coming back on the Steadfast and Law podcast. Thank you, Colonel. It's great to be back with you again. Now, before we get started, there's a really important announcement that you've got to make. And so let's go with that special announcement. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Today is my mother's 75th birthday. She's 75 years young. Uh, Virginia, we love you. We're very proud of you. Happy birthday. Well, Virginia, thank you so very much. And thanks for the incredible job you did in raising up a fine son with Jim. And we just honor you on this day. And one of the important things we have to do is we make sure that we preserve this great nation because of all the sacrifices that you and your generation did to put us here in this position. So God bless you. Thank you, and happy birthday, Virginia. So, Jim, the midterm elections are over. 
without a doubt, there's this change in leadership up there. And so let's talk about the supply chain. Let's talk about the transportation issues. Let's talk about some of the critical policy things that could be done by the Republican leadership coming in in this 118th Congress. So share some things that you think uh, should be maybe the top two or three items that they should look to resolve, rectify, or promote. I would start with three things, and they all happen in California and on the West Coast, to be actually honest with you. So mm-hmm. number one, I would get together with the dock workers unions who, if you remember, Joe Biden did a victory lap saying that he had solved the uh, pending strike of the railroads. This is something you and I talked about back in August, mm-hmm. actually. Well, the unions haven't ratified that, and a bunch of them have actually uh, said that, no, we're not going to ratify this one. They just basically pushed the strike off until after the midterm. So I would get together with those unions and I say, you're not going to strike. And if you do, we're going to federalize it and we're going to step in and we're going to make you continue to work while we negotiate a good agreement. Otherwise, we can force you through the Railroad Act to accept the offer that the mediator put in there. That's the first thing I do. Second thing I do is I would put a lot of pressure on uh, the governor of California to say, you need to repeal the two laws that took over 150,000 trucks off the road in California. That first law was the gig law where if I was an independent contractor as a driver, an independent owner-operator, I had to now set up a whole new corporation and pay myself through a corporation in order to continue to drive. That eliminated a bunch of drivers from the ports. And then I would also um, repeal the law that says if you have a truck that has an engine pre-2010, you can't drive on California roads any longer. That took another 60 to 70,000 trucks off the road. That's really going to free up the supply chain. The last thing I would do is I would get together with the ports in Los Angeles and up and down the West Coast. They've been working without an agreement. They're arguing over who gets the money from maintenance. But I would also make sure that these guys understand we need to automate if we're going to be a successful country. Um, There was a study that came out recently, and I'll get the numbers slightly wrong, but they're directionally correct. Of the 250 major ports throughout the world, the port of Los Angeles and the port of Long Beach, the two largest ports in America, Mm -hmm. ranked 249 and 250 in terms of efficiency. We're behind countries like the Congo when it comes to the ability to unload a a ship. And it all has to do with with automation, the the labor laws, those types of things. Now, the interesting thing, because you always have to be careful because we're constitutional conservatives and we don't want to step on the rights of the states to do things. But this has a federal, this has a national impact. And so when I look at the supremacy clause in the Constitution, where it says that the laws and the the rules and regulations of the federal government are supreme over the state, as long as it's pursuant to their pursuant thereof to the Constitution. So do we have the legal authority and the basis for the federal government to be able to do the things that you're talking about when it comes to the law that uh, California has passed, which has taken all of these trucks off the road? I don't know if we have the legal authority to do it, but, you know, as President Biden showed, if you don't have the legal authority, you just write an executive order and get it done. <laughs> Yeah. But, but what I would do is, first, you never want to have to come in with the heavy hand. You can come in and, and try to have a, a, a logical discussion that says, listen, I know you want your, your state to be green. I know you want your state to be X, Y, and Z. But I need you to hold your nose and do something for the good of the country right now. The good of the country requires that we free up the supply chain, and we need your help. And if you don't do that, then you look into that, the supremacy clause and see what you could do there. I'm not an attorney, but I think, that, I think you could make it work. I mean, the, the only reason right now that we're not seeing worsening supply chain issues is that 
the Chinese economy is in turmoil mm-hmm. and they're not exporting as much because we're also in a recession and we're not importing as much. Mm-hmm. No, no doubt about it, even though there are some people that say, well, you know, recession this, recession that, inflation this, reflation that. I think there's uh, pretty concrete what those definitions are. And the thing we have to understand is, again, you can pass some of these things in the House and the Senate, but it still has to go to Joe Biden, who I don't think is going to be, you know, pushing uh, this type of common sense uh, agenda for transportation and breaking up the supply chain uh, backlog against Gavin Newsom. Because deep down, inside, I think Gavin Newsom is going to be the guy saying I need to be elevated to look at running for president in 2024. So don't come undermining what I'm doing. Well, there, there are two things along those lines, however, though. You know, one is what the I've, I had this discussion with a political consultant on another program is that you really need to get the president on record. Make him yes. um, veto bills. Just keep submitting bill after bill after bill. The other thing is I actually think you can appeal to Gavin Newsom's ego, right, and say to him, listen, if you really want to run against Biden in 2024 and be the Democrat nominee, be the one who solved the supply chain issue when he had four years to do it and couldn't get it done. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could see Gavin Newsom standing up in a, in, a, in, a, in a speech saying, listen, I did something that went against my core values, but it was the best thing to do for the country. And that's what a president needs to do. You know, and that goes back to Bill Clinton. Uh, when you want to talk about the aftermath of this midterm election cycle and the aftermath of Bill Clinton in 1994, where he pivoted. And oh, yeah. and he worked with Newt Gingrich. He worked with the Senate Republicans. Next thing you know, we got a balanced budget. We got a surplus, and all these things. But I just don't know if these progressive socialists are willing to do that and to stand up and say that I did something that was good for the country. Because if Gavin Newsom politically, and you bring up a great point, if he wants to run. You know, we don't want America to look like California, but at least this could give him an opportunity to say, I broke the log jam with our supply chain issue. Uh, So maybe he'll take your advice uh, politically and do something that is right for the country. We'll see. And I think your point about Bill Clinton is is really good. But given the results of the midterms, I think the progressive end of the party is is weakened right now. And so Mm -hmm. we have an opportunity over the next two years to push things through. Again, get President Biden on record by vetoing things because then those political ads write themselves and then, you know, appeal to those who want to run for president in 2024 on the Democrat side to set aside their own beliefs and do what's right for the country. And again, I think that would help them. Now, please don't think I'm trying to become a Democrat political consultant. No, no, no. I'm trying to do. I'm looking out for the good of the country here. No, you're absolutely right. But again, I just think that they're so cemented into their ideological agenda and they're so afraid of the backlash of the leftists that they will not step out and do anything. And so you bring to bring us to a great point because you talk about sending bills and and getting President Biden on record for vetoing things. So when you look at this infrastructure bill that was passed, what are some of the things that Republicans can pick out of there and say, you know, we're going to send it back to you because, you know, 87,000 IRS agents, what does that have to do with infrastructure, which they came back and renamed the Inflation Reduction Act? So what are some of the things that you would look to to send back to Joe Biden? Well, you know, the, the great thing is we don't even necessarily have to send it back. We just don't have to fund it. Mm-hmm. If, 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 you know, you know this better than I do, Colonel, is that, mm-hmm. you know, we control the money. 
Yep. And so if, if we decide we don't want to fund 87,000 IRS agents, maybe, I don't know, replace those with 87,000 border, border agents. agents. That would yes. be awesome, wouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, my goodness. But, you know, I would do that. The things I would send back on is, you know, all this, all the green energy stuff. I would send that back again to him and say, we don't, we won't fund this and then make him put forward another bill that we vote down. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I would look to do that. I would look to, and again, I'm looking at it from a supply chain perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Did we really need to spend 57 billion on, um, on internet and only 15 billion on, on the ports? Or maybe we should we flip that around? Yes. I don't, you know, just saying, um, th- those are the types of things I would look to do. I would look to not fund the things that I think are extremely controversial or that would hurt Americans. And then I would look to send back t- some things that, uh, we want to get them on record for, for vetoing. Now let's, let's say in, in last time, you know, we had a great role play, uh, you know, scenario. You're now the chairman of the house transportation committee and the secretary of transportation, Pete Buttigieg is coming in to testify before you. And that'll happen early on, like January, February next year, because you start billing all the appropriations and what have you. What are some of the questions that you would ask of the secretary of transportation? We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, I'm Kent Charnig, and I'm the founder of El Paso County, Colorado Progressive Veterans. Don't worry, we're not crazy tree huggers, but we do have an amazing podcast talking about nothing but the military and veterans. Please check us out, epccpv.org. Thank you. Talk to you soon. The first question I would ask him, because I would want to get him on record so we could do the follow-up questions, is talk to me about the benefits to the transportation system you have done over the last two years. Mm-hmm. What, are, what are your big wins, Mayor Pete, or Secretary Buttigieg, however you want to call him? Mm-hmm. What, what are your big wins? And then I would, he would list off things like, oh, we, we, we put in a bunch of chargers for, for electric cars and we uh, we got some extra electronic school buses out there, things like we, that. We got and rid of racist bridges and highways. We got rid of the, you know, we, we brought equity to the, the highway system, right? Yeah. But let him go on record of saying what he's done. And then I would start picking things off one by one. And then I would hit him hard on, on the ports, on the railroads, and on the transportation. You and I had a great conversation last time that we mm-hmm. were together talking about what a shame it is, is that, if you're a young woman driving a truck uh, in the military and you're 19 years old and you get out of the military, you can't become an interstate uh, transportation person until you hit 21. You can get your commercial license and do trucks in your home state, but you can't cross state lines. That's ridiculous. And mm-hmm. right now, that industry has a shortage of anywhere, depending on whose estimate you read, between 90,000 and 200,000 truck drivers. So those are some things, you know, why aren't we doing this? And I just keep hitting him on those types of questions. You know, the the thing that I remember him talking about, uh, I believe it was before the Senate uh, committee, and he admitted that they wanted to inflict pain on the American people to get them to, to buy these electric vehicles. You know, are we anywhere near close to being able to sustain across the board electric vehicles in the United States of America. I mean, these, you just said, you know, the charging stations. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but I just recently read where someone was taking a trip in Wyoming, a trip that should have just taken them a couple of hours and ended up taking like 10 to 12 hours. That's, That's insane. It's insane. And 
let's look at it just from an infrastructure perspective. What are we, so, so an electric car, what drives an electric car? A battery. What mm -hmm. charges the battery? Electricity. What makes electricity? It's either going to be coal, yep. it's going to be um, oil, it's going to be nuclear, or it's going to be wind and solar. And if it's wind and solar, guess what, guys? You're not going to have any energy to, to charge your car with. Look at California recently. They mm. said they want to ha have no more um, gas-powered cars sold after, I think it was 2033. And then a week later, they said, please don't charge your cars at night because the grid won't support it. And then the thing that no one talks about is look at, look at cities like Dallas, Chicago, mm -hmm. New York, where people live vertically, not horizontally. Mm -hmm. How long of an extension cord are you going to need to charge your car <laughs> if you live on the 57th floor of a building? Yeah. I mean, th there's just not the infrastructure to support it. Sec the second point on this one is, we're, with, given the inflation right now, we're in a terrible situation in America. I read a report recently where they did a study, and over half of Americans are eating food past its expiration date because they can't afford to go buy a food to replace it once it expires. They're skipping meals, and they're also eating less healthy meals. So mm -hmm. we've gone from people trying to eat healthy and to, and to you know, reduce their own health care costs to now replacing that with fish sticks and french fries because it's cheaper to do, or eating at a place like McDonald's or Burger King or some fast food chain because it's less expensive than having a nutritious meal. So between not being able to afford a car that starts at $50,000, and oh, by the way, it's about an 18-month waiting period to get one, and the fact that people can't feed themselves and we don't have the infrastructure to support it. Listen, I, I want you know beautiful, clean air and beautiful, clean water, like President Trump says, but, and if we want to transition to more green energy, that's great, but let's do it in a way that doesn't put pain on the people in America who can yeah. at least afford it. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, last question on the transportation thing, then I want to talk about where you live in Chicago. Um, what are the type of things in, in the transportation budget that you think should be eliminated, eradicated, you know, lessened or, or whatever? Just, you know, top four or five things that you think about. And, you know, my big concern when I was up there in Congress was, you know, what is happening with the, you know, the trust fund, the highway trust fund? I mean, you know, if we continue to say that we've got to pass these infrastructure bills, I remember Barack Obama said infrastructure bill, President Trump infrastructure bill, and now another infrastructure bill. Where's the money going? I sure would like to know the answer to that question. Same with the gas tax, right? The gas yeah. tax, isn't that supposed to fund the highways? Yes. Or if you're like me from Illinois and you, you drive on the, the tollway system and it costs you $4 every time you go another five miles, where's all that money going? Because it's certainly not going to improve the roads. I tell you what, the only person making money on this infrastructure thing is the company that makes those orange barrels that sit on the side of the road <laughs> in the construction zone. Because I don't see people working. I just see these barrels all over the place. I wish I would have invested in that company a few years ago. So I don't know where the money is going. I think that there needs to be some investigations into where that money has gone and how it's been spent. Um, it could be a situation with like a lot of even still some of the COVID money is still sitting basically in escrow. They haven't spent it yeah. yet. Or, you know, you, you said you want to talk about Chicago. They just passed a new budget yesterday and they talked about how they used, uh, I believe it was two thirds. Um, don't quote me on the number, but two thirds of the COVID money they received in Chicago to just fund the day to day operations of the government. Hmm. That's ridiculous. That, that didn't help anybody other than the politicians. No, no, absolutely not. And so you, you helped us with the transition. 
is Chicago ever going to help itself? Because, you know, we've seen what has happened in New York uh, State and also in New York City. People are not happy. They're rising up. They're talking about the crime issue. We continue to see every single weekend the massive shootings and loss of life in Chicago. What's going to happen to the Windy City? Well, it, it's interesting because, you know, Illinois had uh, in the last year about 117,000 people flee the, flee the state. And it's, it is the, unfortunately, it's the highest educated, highest income people that, that flee because quite frankly, they can afford to pick up and go. Uh, we're seeing cor- corporations leave Chicago. We had three of the Fortune 500 companies leave Chicago in the last year, and McDonald's is threatening to leave. The, the CEO of McDonald's had a very public dispute with Lori Lightfoot and, um, over the safety in the city. We're seeing more and more murders in Chicago. It, it's, you know, the, the weekend of November 4th, there were 32 people shot, five mm-hmm. fatally. Um, one of the pieces of data that, that I think puts it into perspective for people, in the first eight months of 2022, 2,350 people were shot in Chicago, 450 of them fatally. Put that in perspective, according to the Military Times, mm-hmm. from Memorial Day 2020 through Memorial Day 2021, 18 U.S. service members were killed in overseas operations. Mm -hmm. So it's basically more dangerous to live in Chicago than it is to serve in an overseas operation for the military. Um, And no one, the problem is no one seems to care, right? You know, I I talked about the catalyst for me to to, to not move and to stay in Chicago was the Highland Park shooting that happened on July 4th of uh, 2022, where 10 people were killed and more than 20 people were injured. And it got wall-to-wall coverage for days. You had international coverage of that. Well, that same weekend, there were more people killed in the city of Chicago. But because they weren't upper-middle-class white people, no one seemed to care. Yeah. And, you know, I'm tired in Chicago. Every Monday morning, you go online to basically check the box scores to see how many people were shot and how many people were killed. And no one seems to want to do anything about it. It's incredible because, uh, as you know, your police commissioner... Uh, was the former police chief down here in Dallas. Uh, and and I know him, and we've had some great discussions, but are his hands that tied? I mean, yeah. the city the city council, the mayor, I mean, they don't want to improve the situation? The, their hands are tied that badly. Um, there are situations where the police, they just won't draw their weapon any longer. Uh, you remember a couple of years, uh, about a year and a half ago, we had the, the, the young lady shot and killed, uh, the young lady police officer shot and killed her partner shot in the head where they pulled over a car with four people in it. They rolled down the windows. They smelled marijuana. They saw open alcohol. They asked people to step out of the car. One person jumps out and shoots them both. Well, it turns out that they didn't have their weapons drawn because they didn't want to have to fill out the paperwork yeah. for drawing their weapon, not discharging their weapon, drawing their weapon during a, during a stop. That kind of thing has to go. We, they're not allowed to pursue people on foot any longer. I mean, that, that doesn't even make any logical sense. So their hands are so tied that the police officers who are more than five years away from retirement are looking for jobs for the most part. Yeah. They're having trouble recruiting people into the police academy. I, I wouldn't want to sign up to be a police officer in, in Chicago or in any major city right now. Well, and the other thing is that it affects businesses because who yes. wants to be out and about? And even in the daytime, when you have a lot of this crime uh, that is going on and the criminals know that they've got the leg up on you. So I'll give you the last word. How, what's going to happen there in Chicago? What's go- I mean, because so goes Chicago and so goes Cook County. That dictates what happens in Illinois. 
you know, so we, we need a change. We, we, we need a huge change in the city of Chicago. And what, what we also need is we need people like me to say, you know what, I'm not going to run away. I'm going to stay and I'm going to try to change things. I'm going to work with faith-based organizations yeah. to, to try to stop childhood poverty and, and to show people that their chances of success are much better if you graduate high school, you get married and get a job before you start having babies. I'm going to work with police, uh, pro-police groups to get some of these, these rules changed. I would love to see Chicago go back to a New York City style of policing circa Rudy Giuliani. Mm-hmm. I think stop and frisk is a great thing as well as the broken windows policy. The broken windows policy basically showed that the person who jumps the turnstile in a subway is the same person who's going to rob someone, is the same person that's going to rape someone, is the same person that's going to murder someone. Mm-hmm. So we might as well arrest him for the small crime. Uh, I would will work to get Kim Fox out as the state's attorney of Chicago because you know she's a Soros-funded person who believes yeah. that we should have no bail. Um, starting January 1st, Chicago's, or Illinois is going to uh, no-cash bail for basically every crime except first-degree murder. So I, I could commit second-degree murder, burn down your house if I wanted to, assault a police officer, and I'm back out on the street. I could be on a plane out of the country before my name gets on any sort of database. So there are a lot of changes that aren't that hard to make. We just need people to stay and we need people to care. Jim, the amazing thing is that even after these electoral defeats uh, for the left and understanding how crime was such a huge national issue, they still won't get the message. That's what is just so astonishing to me. Well, my my belief, and I don't think it's going to happen in the uh, 2023 mayoral race, but I think in 2027, Chicago is going to be ready for a right-wing, gun-toting, police sort, uh, police supporting <laughs> mayor. And who knows? Nell's 2027? There you go. Uh, you got my endorsement. Well, look, Jim, it's always a pleasure. Your insights into the economy and the supply chain and transportation is so valued by us here at Steadfast and Law Podcast. So thank you very much. And if I don't get to see you, have a happy Thanksgiving, a Merry Christmas, and Happy New Year. Same to you, Colonel. Have a great one. God bless. God be with you. Before they burn it down.